Double Door Studios at Manassas National Battlefield Park. I'm Nikki Bland. And I'm Franny Robin. This is A Different Truth. In this episode, our second on white privilege, we're going to go over the statistics in 12 areas of our society which demonstrate the pervasiveness of white privilege faced by many every day. Hang in there, we can do this together. We'll post the document we're working from and let you dig through the source data yourself. A Different Truth can be found on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please like and follow us on those platforms. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and a review. That helps us get more views and show up in more searches. You can also check us out at our website, adifferenttruthpodcast.com. We will share resources and information on our website and social media platforms, where you can also send questions, comments, and ideas for future podcasts. We really want this to be an interactive engagement with our listeners, so please let us hear from you. Thanks again for listening. Welcome back, Franny. Oh, it's good to be here with you, Nikki. We're getting the hang of this uh, social distance podcasting. <laughs> we're, we're pros yeah. after one episode. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> we only did one episode. Quickly becoming pros. Yeah. We know what we're doing. Um, so, yeah, we really just started scratching the surface of the concept of white privilege in our last episode and sort of had a little closing thought for folks who may have been dealing with some of those concepts for the first time and um, sort of understanding maybe the emotion or the even physical reaction they were having to hearing some of that information. And, you know, I shared when I first started really digging into what it meant, what white privilege meant, that it was it was physically exhausting. Um, and I would often have to take breaks, which in and of itself is a privilege. So we sort of talked about the concept of white fragility and again just want to remind folks we're going to dedicate an episode to that concept coming up very soon. But what we wanted to do after sort of trying to understand what white privilege is, which Peggy McIntosh's invisible knapsack analogy really very clearly lays out uh, for folks to understand what it is, we really want to get to some information that hopefully helps for some folks um, convince them that it does indeed exist because you hear a lot of reactions about, you know, when people hear about white privilege and what it is, um, that they really question it and they have maybe some misunderstandings about what that looks like that hopefully we helped to shed a little bit of light on last time. But this this episode, we are going to focus on statistics in several areas of society. And we've got a document here that we're working from that is referenced in the Be The Bridge uh, Whiteness 101 curriculum 
Uh, it's it's something that many people doing this work often refer to. It's not super recent. It was originally done about 10 years ago or so. Um, but I would venture to guess that the statistics, the numbers haven't changed that much, if at all, in the last 10 years, given how slowly our society, you know, or really any society tends to evolve. I would think that these are probably still pretty spot on. And we actually want to start with sort of a frame of reference for folks before we dig into the numbers. And the idea is that as you're listening to this information, for you to think about what you would understand, what you would feel if these numbers reflected the numbers for your race. So um, this article is um, just chock full of information, but it's also got some great thoughts for us to keep in mind. And one of those is what would you do if it were you? And, you know, a lot of white people talk about reverse racism, um, that black people just don't like white people and, you know, things like that. And even so, if you were to hear this information and, you know, react as if this was applied to you and your life and um, were suddenly, if everything was the same, not that suddenly you were the minority or you were, um, you know, not in a position of power or privilege, but all those expectations of your current life being the same and still being considered normal, what if we were treated the way people of color are in this country, in these areas. And undoubtedly, anybody who was treated poorly under any circumstances would, you know, decry the injustice, he says. We, you know, would protest in the streets of every town. We'd be, you know, angry, bitter, and spiteful and hateful towards people who, you know, occupied this position of privilege um, instead of us. And... I just find it really interesting that he says, you know, the epitome of white privilege is that if black people attempted to, you know, attempt to react in the same way, anytime black people protest um, or, you know, cry about, cry out about the injustices that they face, um, you know, maybe do have anger and bitterness towards their situation that mainstream white society would call them self-interested, would denounce their outrage as unbecoming and inappropriate and would admonish them to, hey, you just have to work within the system and basically blame them for their own situation. So it's interesting to, I just thought that was a really interesting perspective um, to sort of think about really putting yourself in somebody else's shoes as we go through some of this data and you know again like we talked about last time pay attention to what hearing some of this information does to you and how it makes you feel um so with that um the you know the purpose again of the 
of this information is to prove that white privilege exists through data and statistics. Um, he doesn't try to go into what it is because others have done that so well already. So the idea here is that he pulls data and organizes it into 12 categories. Um, and actually, let me pause right here because I have a printout of this. Um, but Franny, you might have the, um, the article up. So can you please remind us of the author's name who put this together so folks His know? His name is J.B. Uh, J.B.W. Tucker. Thank you. He's the author of the this article, and it's titled The Ultimate White Privilege Statistics and Data Post. Right. So, And we'll share the link with you. Thank you. We'll do that. So the data, like I said, it's organized into 12 categories, and we're just going to touch on a few data points in each of them. And then again, like Franny said, post the link for you to um, go read it yourself. It's quite lengthy, and there he cites every source of the data. So you could literally not get too far into it and realize you've already got like 20 tabs open on your <laughs> computer because there's so much in here. Uh, the 12 mm -hmm. categories that he goes through are the police, the war on drugs, prison or mass incarceration, the criminal justice system and courts, education, employment, wealth, workplace, voting, media, and housing. And, you know, we've done some research in a few of these areas, not a lot. There's more out there than any person could consume. But, um, you know, we'll probably chime in with some of our own learning that we've um, been able to do along the way. And also he puts, you know, um, some information together and he says the uh, data also pertains specifically to black and Latino people. But the focus is primarily on black people since um, black people experience the harshest form of discrimination at the highest rates. And so um, he just uh, for, you know, the question sometimes we, we get sometimes get is um, it's not always about black people. But this information, once we put it out there, you're able to look through it and investigate the information for yourself. But it's primarily because black people are usually experiencing the harshest form of discrimination. Right. So that's the focus. Okay, so with that, let's jump right into it. So the first category is police. Some of the data, um, he states that young black boys or men ages 15 to 19 are 21 times more likely to be shot and killed by the, by the police than young white boys or men. That black boy that I'm sorry that blacks are less than 13 percent of the U.S. population, and yet they are 31 percent of all fatal police shooting victims, and 39 percent of those killed by police, even though they weren't attacking. And he includes some, you know, graphics for those that, you know, are visual thinkers. Um, and points out um, in this first graphic where he talks about um, people killed by police during an arrest and by circumstances and shows, you know, blacks, whites and Hispanics. Um, and, you know, this, again, is limited to those that are being arrested are being um, who are killed while they're being arrested and whether or not they were attacking. And it looks at the total U.S. population versus you know, so where people fall, again, 
black people are 13% of the population. They're 31% of the victims. They're 39% uh, 39% of those who are killed when not attacking. Um, and 42% of those not who are killed when not attacking and are not killed with a rifle or a shotgun. So just, you know, that kind of detail. But, um, you know, just helps put into perspective the... As Franny was saying, the higher proportion of victimization versus the percentage of the population in that case. And he also um, underscores a point that police departments, uh, many of them uh, across the country, are not required to report. Mm -hmm. And um, even the ones that reported this information, the data really is showing the rate at which, you know, African young men, African-American young men, are still inclined to be killed by police officers, even though they're selective, they're choosing to um, report this data. And so, yeah, when you think um, about it, it could it just, be a lot higher. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It, it, the, the data that we have is completely based on non compulsory reporting. So just think about what's not being reported in that case. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility to think that it would be less favorable if it was all being reported, you know, even less favorable mm-hmm. than it already is. Um, and he also goes on to say, you know, that the police are also much more inclined to stop and frisk black and Latino boys at a much, much higher rate than that of white boys. And he breaks it down by giving some statistics, um, New York City and the population and its size. And so it's there's just a lot there. But um, he just goes on to show that trends as they're being reported uh, just shows an increase rather than a decrease Um in, in the trend to support the data. So as of 2019, the presumption is that this number is could be very, you know, much higher. Right. And if you add to it the data around uh, prosecuting and convicting police officers who have illegally, you know, stopped, arrested, charged, imprisoned, um, that's a much lower number. And and so when you hold those two things up next to each other, considering the number of people of color who are undeservedly treated that way, who are victimized that way, compared to the low numbers of of police officers who are held accountable, um, you really start to understand how we've got a criminal justice system that's broken. Um, there's a few of these areas that he gets into um, where he'll also take specific, as Franny was saying, specific locations. Got you know, so there's information here about you know New York City in particular. Um, he's got some data uh, in Los Angeles, which I thought was interesting. This data is from the Department of Justice. Uh, from Los Angeles between July 2003 and 2004. And it states that blacks are 127% more likely to get frisked and 76% more likely to get searched than whites. Latinos were 43% more likely to get frisked and 16% more likely to get searched. However, and yet, he says... Frisked blacks were 42% less likely to be found with a weapon 
than frisked whites. And Latinos were 32% less likely than whites to be found with a weapon. Um, He says consensual searches, or points out, consensual searches of blacks were 37% less likely to uncover weapons, 23.7% less likely to uncover drugs, and 25.4% less likely to uncover any other type of contraband than consensual searches of whites. And gives similar statistics for Latinos. So another example of, you know, targeting people, targeting non-whites and getting actually fewer who are guilty of the thing for which they're being targeted than whites tend to be. Um, In 2007, the U.S. Justice Department report on racial profiling found that blacks and Latinos were three times as likely to be stopped as whites and that blacks were twice as likely to be arrested and four times as likely to experience the threat or, or use of force during interactions with police. So, again, he cites um, six different... Um, data sources just for this section on police um, to show the census information, some of the articles, ACLU reporting um, that uh, served as the source for this information. The next section that he goes into is the war on drugs. Um, He talks about Blacks are less than 13% of the U.S. population, again, but they make up, uh, and they make up only 14% of regular drug users, but they are 37% of those arrested for drug offenses and 56% of those in state prisons for drug offenses. Mm-hmm. An amazing disparity. A couple of other interesting facts. Blacks aged 18 to 25 are less likely than whites to have used marijuana in the last 12 months. Blacks of all ages are also more likely never to have used marijuana. And yet, black arrest rates for marijuana are astronomically higher than they are for whites, and they're only getting worse. And he cite in one of the articles um, on that, in that category, um, in the Washington Post, he gave 14 examples. It's called 14 Examples of Racism in the Criminal Justice System. And um, he said the biggest crime in the U.S. criminal justice system is that it's a race-based institution, a race-based institution where African-Americans are directly targeted and punished in a more aggressive way than white people are. And in support of that, um, EJI, which is an equal justice initiative that does a really, um, they're committed to ending mass incarceration across the board, but um, in significant populations to include uh, juveniles that are uh, incarcerated with adults. So Brian Stevenson, who is an attorney and an adv- activist in ending mass incarceration amongst uh, African-Americans, uh, and, and across the board and specifically targeting specific groups. One of such group is juveniles that are incarcerated uh, with adults. But he will, he goes on to give some statistics and he shared that the U.S. has 5% of the world's population, but nearly 25% 
of its incarcerated population, it ends there. Yeah, right. So of the world's incarcerated population. Oh, uh, yeah. but nearly, yes. Okay. No, but nearly, so the U.S. has 5% of the world's population, but nearly 25% of its incarcerated population. Right. Um, also, he goes on to share um, the amount of money that is being put towards uh, jails and prison. In 2015, $87 billion um, was set aside for uh, spending on jails and prisons. Uh, at, in, it increased a thousand percent from 1975. Uh, in 1972, there were only 200,000 people incarcerated in the United States. Today, that number has grown to 2.2 million. Yeah, yeah. That and so the crazy. war on drugs, as we will continue to show you through this study, has been ineffective, but the, the system is creating a lucrative industry for those who are on the incarcerating side. So we'll right. talk a little bit more about the statistics and as they've gone up and the populations that are continued to be affected, primarily African-American, the African-American community. Right. Prison is the next category. Um, I just wanted to give some information, though, too, in closing out the war on drugs discussion. War on drugs. Um, this is interesting um, to Franny's point. The war on drugs really has been completely ineffective. Um, Richard mm -hmm. Nixon declared the war on drugs in 1971, and at that time, the U.S. addiction rate was approximately 1.3%. Interestingly, that's what it is today. It hasn't spiked or dropped significantly in, at any point in its 40-year history, and they state it has floated unwaveringly between one and one and a half percent for the last 45 years. So if that's just really thought provoking when you think about hmm. the resources that have been poured into this war on drugs. Um, goes on to say that drug use among teens has not decreased. In fact, in recent years, again, this was a couple of years ago, there seems to be a moderate increase. Uh, what fluctuations there have been have not been correlated to any enforcement of the war on drugs. And recent data shows that marijuana legalization hasn't made teens more likely to use marijuana. Um, That's correct. You know, he does summarize that, you know, it has, what the war on drugs has done is trap millions of people, especially black men, in poverty and push them mm -hmm. toward a life of crime. With black boys arrested 10 times more frequently than white boys for a nonviolent crime that they commit less frequently than white boys, black men are funneled into a criminal justice system from a young age. And we'll talk about the school to prison pipeline. Uh, mm -hmm. With felonies on their records, it's incredibly difficult for black men to get work. And as a result, they're trapped in low paying jobs or worse, turning to crime. Mm hmm. Um, and, you know, he goes on to talk about, you know, other aspects and how the war on drugs has really become the new Jim Crow. And it's a law enforcement policy that unfairly and disproportionately targets black men, resulting in their disenfranchisement and permanent relegation to an American underclass. Um, mm -hmm. It's yeah, it's just pretty astounding when you look at those numbers and realize how ineffective it's been. So the next section is on prisons. Um, Franny already mentioned a couple of these statistics. Um, 
Another one is that the U.S. prison population rose by 700% from 1970 to 2005, again, mostly as a result of the war on drugs. Um, she, she quoted the U.S. population, you know, being 5% of the world, but 25% of the world's prisoners. Um, one in every 15 black men and one in every 36 Latino men are currently incarcerated. While for every white man, the statistic is one in 106. One in three black men can expect to go to jail at some point in their lifetimes. One in three. Mm-hmm. One in three. And, um, that is just amazing. Yeah, and uh, Brian Stevenson actually co- um, supports the data that you are. Uh, Mm -hmm. that's in that report right Uh, it says black men are nearly six times more likely to be incarcerated than white men Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and it says one of six latino boys born in 2001 will go to jail or prison or as current Mm -hmm. trends indicate wow so he's able actually able to even give you a specific year to create a time frame and understanding in your minds right um, so we talked about blacks being 13% of the population. Minorities as a whole are less than 28% of the population, but they are nearly 60% of the U.S. Mm-hmm. prison population. Blacks specifically are 38% of the American prison population. And that and you also have to okay. understand, like, the institution, I'm sorry, Nikki, the institution mm-hmm. that... Um, which is what we talked about earlier that, you know, like Nikki asked when this, this podcast opened to, to think and be open-minded, um, with the information that we're going to present. And one of the things that Brian Stevenson at EJI points out in, he said, you know, criminalizing black people was the basis for convict leasing, leasing. So it's not just as we're reading this statistics even though the report goes back 10 years it's also a system that's created to pro- convict leasing convict leasing was a system created to provide cheap labor after slavery was abolished and um so all this is rooted in a country that has laws that supports this type of um, massive incarceration and massive disparity amongst the population, specifically disparities amongst people of color, particularly African-American boys and African-American men, you know. And so one of the the, the fact the factors that lead to that mass incarceration was the uh, 13th Amendment the, to, to the U.S. Constitution that was ratified in 1865, where they... Um, reiterated with the uh, you know uh, involuntary service servitude pr- slavery was prohibited with the exception uh as in re- as, as in a crime as in reference to a crime or involuntary servitude so it just allowed legislators to pass these codes that now we can you know are also laws that just punish um, people of color severely and like Nikki just quoted some statistics just prior to that that the, the the severity of the punishment is just more brutal in the in African American community and and people of color. Right. So um, just think of it through those lens as we're sharing that data. You know, I think Nikki, you asked the question, "What would you do or if what if it what if happened to you?" Mm-hmm. I can't remember how the question. What would you was do phrased, if it were? But, yeah. What would you do if it were you? 
what would you do if it were you as representing this? So please have an open mind and yeah. start challenging the way you hear and see these statistics and the data that we're putting out. And just to, you know, reference another really great resource is the book, um, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander. This was first published 10 years ago, um, but it's it's become, you know, even more well-known recently. Um, another good thing to look at that focuses a lot on statistics is the Netflix documentary 13th which we talked about mm-hmm. in a recent episode of resources we referred you to. So those are two good ones that will speak directly to crime statistics, prison statistics um, that really show how we've basically made, you know, almost made being black a crime in, in so mm-hmm. many ways, um, which Didn't goes back to, you know, the original, Jim Crow laws where the mm-hmm. slightest thing could get you arrested and that is what allowed mm-hmm. them to catch you in that loophole in the 13th amendment mm-hmm. so yeah we could do a whole episode on that um, but we're going to move on to mm-hmm. the crim- criminal justice and the courts um, again a lot of interesting data here um, I'll just point out a few items you know, they talk about in the article about the amount of time that blacks remain in prison awaiting trial than whites, um, that they're detained at all, and how much longer. Um, the Some of the disparities among plea bargaining um, and what mm-hmm. that looks like. Uh, a study in Georgia in the 1980s found that more than 20% of black t- defendants convicted of murdering white victims received the death penalty. However, only 8% of whites who killed whites and 1% of blacks who killed other blacks received the death penalty. That that one in particular I, I highlighted because it just, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but something tells me I'm not. Um, but it just made me think even when you look at the shocking disparity between how blacks who are convicted of murdering whites which we already know that you know just you know receiving the death penalty we already know that statistically speaking from the work that EJI has done that 10 percent of those on death row are innocent so Mm-hmm. Even assuming they're not, though, just looking at these raw numbers, um, that only if you just compare the 20 percent of black defendants who co- are convicted of murdering whites to the one percent of blacks who kill other blacks receiving the death penalty, it's almost like I can't help but conclude that it's not as bad of a crime to kill a black person, whether, you know, in both cases, the defendant is black. But in the first case, the victim is white. In the second case, Mm -hmm. the victim is black. And yet they're 20 times more likely to get the death penalty if you kill a white person versus Mm -hmm. killing a black person. I mean, it's just there's I don't know how else to read that. So that just really kind of stopped me in my tracks and made me think a little bit, um, you know, about what that says about our society. Um, some additional well, just mercy comes yeah. so, yeah, I was yeah. just gonna say just mercy comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um just to give you a visual, uh for those of you who 
um, are who are able to process this kind of information when it's presented in documentary or movie form, I highly recommend Just Mercy. So you could actually see the statistics that Nikki just read in a real life, real life situation Yeah, that um, you can relate to. And the statistics um, are current, you know, mm-hmm. they're as of December, I believe, 2019. And that um, it so just came out. March. Just, yeah. just came out on iTunes, so you can watch it in your social distancing. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of other things: once convicted black offenders receive sentences that are ten percent longer than white offenders for the same crimes, and that mm-hmm. sentencing gap has widened in recent years since since judicial discretion was returned by the Supreme Court in two thousand five where they stated prison sentences of black men were nearly 20% longer than those of white men for similar crimes in recent years. Two-thirds of criminals receiving life sentences are non-whites. In the state of New York, it's 83%, so even more. Mm -hmm. Um, So just the disparities at all levels, right, from Mm -hmm. being arrested, being convicted, what that process looks like to even go through a trial, um, or the, the criminal justice process, even if you plea bargain, um, the, mm-hmm. the length of the sentencing, um, the severity of the sentencing, you know, life versus death. I mean, all of it points to, um, you know, the unfairness toward people of color. And he, what I found interesting too, he goes through, um, actually, quotes the U.S. Bar Association um, looking at its own public defender system and came to the following conclusion. And they say, this is the U.S. Bar Association in 2004, all too often defendants plead guilty even if they are innocent without really understanding their legal rights or what is occurring. The fundamental Mm -hmm. right to a lawyer that America assumes applies to everyone accused of criminal conduct conduct effectively does not exist in practice for countless people across the U.S., which, as he says, is the American Bar Association admitting that the fundamental constitutional Mm -hmm. right to a fair trial does not exist for many people in the United States. So, you know, it doesn't always turn out like an episode of Law and Order. Right. Um, Um... and then there are other systems too that are in place um that are working against uh people of color uh in states like California with their three, three strikes out mm-hmm. and I do believe um the governor Newsom actually uh, amended that uh that rule that law mm-hmm. uh this year uh, I, I do believe it is a, an exception was made for nonviolent crime, and mm-hmm. so he got rid of the three strikes. Uh, you're outlaw for right. nonviolent crimes. Yeah, so, there's a big cry right um, now too for um, people to reevaluate mandatory minimums um, and how mm-hmm. that works against uh, people. The when you look at again, they talk about EJI talks about this a lot. The the number of black youths who are in prison for life for nonviolent crimes um, Mm -hmm. is quite staggering. And just to think, again, 
Think about if that were you. Think about if that were your child. You know, there's Mm -hmm. the thought that they could commit a nonviolent crime and literally spend the rest of their life in prison is something that most people don't even have to consider. And it's just very sobering when you do. So, yeah, and another factor that EGI, um, and so, uh, to, to piggyback off of that, Nikki, another factor that affects um, the disproportionate rate of African Americans incarcerated is what's known as truth in sentencing. Mm-hmm. Um, it allows states to enact laws that require people to serve at least 85% of their time in prison. And, um, and so as a result, states abolished the parole board altogether. And now um, a huge amount of money was allotted to states. I believe in 1994, it was called the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. And it allotted $12.5 billion to states to increase incarceration. And so states vying to get an airmarked amount of the, those funds abolish parole boards and are now, and have now enacted the truth and sentence in law um, to have um, people serve at minimum or yeah, at minimum 85% of their prison sentencing. Right. And yeah, I mean, uh, uh, something um, I'm trying to remember if he even gets into this here or if it was somewhere else, but just the, um, the prison industry, the for-profit mm-hmm. prison industry that mm-hmm. has literally, it's big business in the United States. I mean, it's not hard to understand mm-hmm. why we would be incentivizing, you know, people who build these these prisons and um, what they're doing to lobby for laws that would increase the prison population mm-hmm. and their income. Right. I mean, it's just, it, right. you know, it's not a stretch. Um All right, so the next area we're going to talk about is education, and you'll see that this will also tie back to uh, some of the criminal justice statistics as well. Um, So a couple of opening statistics here um, about whites. Whites are 78% more likely to be accepted to the same university as equally qualified people of color equally qualified once admitted 70 71% of white students receive degrees compared to only 29% of people of color when they do graduate black college graduates have significantly more debt than white graduates so again just pure raw data um eh, let's see hold on a second i need to that was just one minute Um, one of the interesting facts that he gets into or interesting areas that he gets into is the investment in, uh, students. Um, so there are this organization for economic and economic cooperation and development, which is referred to as OECD, uh, nations. There are 34, um, the U S is one of them. And the U.S. is one of only three of these 34 OECD nations to give fewer resources and have lower teacher-student ratios in poorer communities than in more privileged communities. 
while the majority of the countries in this organization either invest equally into every student or disproportionately more into disadvantaged students. US, the U.S. is one of the few countries doing the exact opposite. Um, here's an example from New York. In New York, the value of the poorest 10% of school districts was $287,000 per student. In the richest districts, that number was $1.9 million per student. In the 2010 and 11 school year, the wealthiest 10% of New York school districts spent $25,505 per student, and the poorest 10% of school districts only spent $12,861 per student. Only 17 states in the United States provide more funding to high-poverty districts than to low-poverty districts. Um, and then he talks about a Georgetown University study founding at the, uh, find, found the same racial divide is repeated in higher education as well, that the post-secondary system mimics and magnifies the racial ethnic inequality in educational preparation it inherits from the K-12 through system and then projects this inequality further into the labor market. And when you think about, besides uh, the investment, how children of color in public schools are treated. Um, we find that they're treated much the same way the teenagers and adults are treated by the law. Children of color are more likely to be perceived of as guilty, problem children, young criminals, and funneled into the justice system early. That's what we refer to as the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, I, you know, I thought some of these other statistics were really interesting about kids in school um, and even just how we view children of color versus white children in general. Um, the, a study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology found that young black boys are viewed differently than their white peers. And their, their research found that black boys can be seen as responsible for their actions at an age when white boys still benefit from the assumption that children are essentially innocent. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. To, in support of that, I just wanted to give another definition of the school to prison pipeline that has become a trend um, described as disturbing by the ACLU, um, where children are funneled out of public schools and into juvenile and criminal justice systems. And uh, many of these children have, many of them have learning disabilities, a history of poverty, as the report already indicates, abuse, neglect. Right. And they would benefit from additional services, and that's being discussed in the school system right now, but instead they're isolated, punished, and pushed out. And a lot of that is due to Policies like the zero-tolerance policies for minor infractions where cops are called. And recently there was this case of a seven-year-old, uh, I'm sorry, six-year-old um, that was having a temper tantrum at school and the cop was called, police officers were called. And the police officer came to this little girl's school and he put her in handcuffs and he put her in the back of a car and took her to a juvenile detention center. So this was, um, I believe, last year, 2019, that this happened. And so we are seeing children as young as six years old 
being handcuffed and she was an African, a little African-American girl and um, she needed additional support because the school was aware that she was having some uh, health issues at home. And rather than, you know, take care of her from that pers- point of service, um, she was handcuffed and driven away into the back of, of a police car. And that's highly, highly, highly disturbing. And so some of the things that these statistics point to, you know, I could also share that my children went to Christian school and a lot of times um, they were expected to debunk like stereotypes. Uh, And so they would give, they were given these negative compliments. Oh, for a X, Y, and Z, you are, you speak well, or you are smart or you get good grades and things like that. So um, uh, a lot of these statistics, they have been, I mean, they're, they, they hit home. They hit close to home. And um, so please, again, I will continue to be the voice that encourages you to listen to it through the lens of what if it were your child right. or children and what if it was happening to you. Right. Um, yeah, just to summarize, I'm not going to read all of these statistics, but when you go through this and look at the increased likelihood of black and Latino students um, repeating a grade or being involved mm-hmm. in a school-related arrest or being referred to for, to law enforcement, as you just said, six years old. I mean, talk about mm-hmm. hard to even get your brain around. Um, that they make up 60% of the convi- confined youth today um, there's mm-hmm. 70% of the students involved in school-related arrests are black and Latino. Um, and that while black students make up only 18% of the student population, they're 35% mm-hmm. of those that are suspended once, 46% of those that are suspended more than once, and 39% of those that are expelled. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, again, using your example of what just recently happened with that six-year-old little girl, um, you know, they point out that criminal charges are brought against youth in school for violations that would never be normally considered criminal, even by an adult. I mean, look at, um, it reminds me of even videos we've seen of, you know, white people screaming in a police officer's face and just being told to calm down versus a black person Mm -hmm. asking, why am I being detained? And, you know, being, you know, thrown to the ground. Sandra Bland comes to mind, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and just the disparity in how we're treating people based on, you know, what they look like. Um, And when you think about how children of color are treated in public schools and what path that starts them down um a child they talk about a child who has been suspended is far more likely to fall behind in school to be retained in a grade to drop out to commit a crime and then become incarcerated uh, as an adult and the best demographic indicators of children who will be suspended are not the type or severity of the crime but the color of their skin, their special education status, the school they go to, and whether or not they've been suspended before. And this, it's, I mean, these numbers are heart-wrenching. Um, I just want to read just a quick statement 
um, I, I keep going back to EJI, um, Equal Justice Initiative, because this is the work that Brian Stevenson does. And he says in, a, in hundreds of ways, ranging from mandatory school attendance to harsher penalties for crime involving minors, the law recognizes that children are different from adults. They are more vulnerable, emotional, and impulsive, and they can't get themselves out of unsafe homes or communities. But they are also more likely to change as they grow. And they, and so we pass laws to protect children from their own poor decisions and from adults who would harm or take advantage of them. But until recently, these legal protections didn't apply to children accused of committing violent crimes. So children were executed in the United States up until 2005. And only in the last decade has the Supreme Court limited death in prison sentences for children. So kids as young as eight can still be charged as an adult and held in an adult jail and be sentenced to extreme sentences in adult prisons. And so I love EJI and the work that he's doing. So I keep referencing it. But I mean, when you go back to what he said initially to the mandatory school attendance, that's the assumption that all kids could get to school and all parents could be available there to get their kids to school. So you have truancy that's now enacted to get kids to who to punish kids who can't get to school. And so that just is a, a such a vicious cycle for the innocent. And then one of the things just recently, I, I believe Brian was also behind this, that children now receive protections from um, being sentenced in prison with adults. But now I think there's a new case that came out where they are actually filing charges against those who have abused children while they were in incarcerated with adults. So I just love the fact that EJI is working to protect children from abusive treatment in the adult uh, criminal justice system. And so also to protect children before they get into the juvenile system, to protect them at home and to protect them in ways that our laws who actually are enacted to protect them in certain areas, but not in others. Mm -hmm. And so all these statistics that you're sharing, it just takes one outburst in some schools, in some districts for a child to start becoming those statistics to be suspended, to be expelled, to be now a, a, a number that's part of the prison to the school to prison pipeline. Yeah. So again, at the yeah. close of every statement I'm making, I'm asking mm-hmm. you to put yourself in the role where you are now being personally forced to ask, because I'd like to ask you to ask yourself, what if this was your child? And if you have had a child uh, who is a non-person of color, please share, because uh, it doesn't diminish the fact that you have gone through something that, you know, you have experienced with the school. But we do want to hear that. But we we want you to also understand the the disparities that lie, because a lot of times these children are in impoverished communities. A lot of times the parents have to go to work. Both parents have to go to work in household where there is a single parent. There's no um, flexibility to take time off because a lot of times the jobs that they hold doesn't allow for paid time off or give them the flexibility or the luxuries of having um, leave time. And so usually, you know, at one point we used to call a lot of, the, you know, our generation latchkey kids because the kids came home and they knew to stay home mm-hmm. and lock the doors. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has changed and it has evolved over time. Parents are very concerned about their children. They have the Internet and the Internet at their 
Um, and so the assumption is not every child has a phone, but every child has to have a computer, at, or at least it's the desire that of schools that every child has a computer to get the work done. Well, once you have a computer and you have access to internet, you have access to things that you cannot control to protect your children while you are at work, right. especially in household where there's only a single parent. So please, again, when we share this information and you're finding that an explanation is coming up within you to say, but what if, well, how come? Let's just filter through the lens of the roles being reversed just for a little while. Okay, I am going to blast through the next couple of these um, real quickly. So employment. Um, The get an education, get a job argument has some challenges as well. Um, Even when they manage to get a good education as Franny talked about it's not always accessible even if they can get to school what is the quality of the school um so but even if they manage to um sort of beat the system graduate without a criminal record without a lot of uh baggage that they're carrying with them from that experience they still face huge discrimination um and these couple of um facts play that out so a black college student has the same chances of getting a job as a white high school dropout a white male with a criminal record is five percent more likely to get a job than an equally qualified person of color with a clean record you might want to read that again yeah A white male with a criminal record is 5% more likely to get a job than an equally qualified person of color with no record at all. And lastly, blacks need to complete not one but two more levels of education just to have the same probability of getting a job as the white guy. Which, think about... I'm just going to... Yeah. I went to this conference and there was a gentleman there. He had uh, two masters and two PhD and he was having a hard time finding a job. I'm not including other factors, but primarily what he was told for the jobs that he applied to was that he was overqualified. Mm-hmm. And the uh, dismay that this man expressed and he was he was just working. He needs to provide for his family. And he was asking, should I go back to get another degree? Do I need another degree so that I could be um, more um, deemed more hireable or for more opportunities to come up? And the, the, the facilitator just had to spend some time with him to kind of rework the thought process. It's not more education, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's, that's a lot of edu- education to have. But just the, the the fact that you can have those multiple degrees and still are just getting paid the average, you know, of what is that stat you just read? Um, 5%. No, that was. But uh, yeah, yeah, just the fact just, that you have the yeah. degrees and still can get. The same job as a as a white guy with one degree. Yeah. So he put in all that extra effort. Expense and everything else. Um, okay, mm-hmm. so let's talk about wealth. Um, this is really interesting 
when you think about inherited wealth with the fact you think about housing discrimination and how most people's net worth is in their mortgage, you know, in their homes Mm -hmm. by having a mortgage and paying that off and even what house they have and their access to, um, you know, bigger houses, better neighborhoods, you know, all of that plays Mm -hmm. into wealth in America. Um, Mm-hmm. Some interesting facts here. The average net worth of black households is $6,314. I'm glad you're sitting down. Compared to $210,500 for the average white household. And that's average. So obviously. I'm going to tell you this. Yeah. Yeah. It's not everybody. So but there's. Yeah. Um, well, I could give you an example because I'm that example. I remember um, in my work I before. Leaving to do to pursue something else. My coworker and I, she's former Air Force. I'm former Army. Uh, she did four years. I did eight. She has an undergrad. I have an undergrad. We came into the same role as mid and mid level analysts. I was paid forty five thousand. She was paid eighty five thousand. We did the same job. We did. We accessed the same database. We sat directly across from each other. So one of the things that um, when you're employed, um, most people could relate to this, is that you're not to discuss uh, salary. And so we didn't, uh, but we eventually became friends and we came up with a plan to pursue our God-given passion because we just struggled every day. So we started referring to our jobs as golden handcuffs. And um, we just got to a place where I was saying to her, it, it was hard for me to transition to go work in what I believe God has placed me on this planet to do because I needed this job. And so we started coming up with a, a plan for creating extra income so that we could offset the, the, the salary, the salaries that we were going to lose. And that's where um, our, my, our budget was displayed. And that's where she saw that I was making 40,000 less than her in the same job, same title, same cube, same office, same roles, same responsibilities, same background experience. I was brown. She wasn't. And so I, I couldn't think of, I mean, we had like in terms of experience, it's just same. Um, very identical, I should say. Um, but, you know, the income was very different. Yeah. Wow. Um I learn something new about you every day, and not all of it <laughs> makes me happy. I'm sorry. I had to pause for a second yeah. <laughs> process that. Yeah. Um, but it supports, I mean, you're, you're a living testimony to the fact that this information is accurate, mm-hmm. right? Um, they go yeah. on to talk about, um, they, they say a white college-educated American has an average net worth of $75,000, and a black college-educated American has an average net worth of less than $17,500. The black-white wealth gap is even greater today than it was in South Africa in 1970 at the height of apartheid. And we also incarcerate a higher percentage of blacks today than than apartheid South Africa did. That just makes my head explode. Um, so this is where 
the reason we're doing this comes to light um, because you can't ignore where we've come from and hope to understand where we are and where we're going. And when you think about this, this idea of inherited wealth in particular um, and the fact that, you know, so, so many people do have Uh, So many white people do have, um, or I should say a higher percentage of white people have inherited wealth or have, you know, a net worth that's higher than blacks for all those reasons we just discussed. You can't forget that for 250 years, black people didn't have property. They were property. Um, And when you go through everything from you know, the Civil War to the Emancipation Proclamation through Jim Crow, the Civil Rights, you know, all of those things, which we've talked about, were not a linear upward progression, right? Um, And really how even some of the most venerated times in our history when we try to think about the positives in, you know, social justice, Um, You know, everyone loves to laud MLK. We talk about Rosa Parks, you know, all of those things. We teach our children all about the civil rights movement. Um, You know, our parents watched that on TV. This was not a long time ago. And, you know, when you think about how recently, even with all of these statistics, how recently blacks have been in a position to, you know, have even any more opportunity forget about the same opportunities because i think we've established that that doesn't happen yet but more opportunity than they had before is so recent the idea that it's a level playing field that the united states is a meritocracy is just not supportable by facts and this concept of people you know we've said it multiple times that we expect black people to be able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps within a single generation. It, it, it's, it's shocking. Um, and, and so the next section is work, the workplace. And you talked about your own experience there. Um, so I'm only briefly going to note that some of what they get into here is the wage gap, like you were saying. Um, and I don't know, I'm looking real quickly. They don't talk about the, what black women make versus white women. It's mostly, you know, what white women make versus black versus white men. Um, and and those comparisons, but you've, you've shared your own story that, um, testifies to the wage gap there as well. So in 2005, the race and gender pay gap kind of, um, outlined, or did a presentation on in the amount of money different groups of people make. So um, a white woman makes uh, forty two thousand and twenty six dollars uh, in comparison to a white male making fifty five thousand one hundred and sixty six. So that's the difference in a white male white female um, income gap. Uh, in 2015. Well, when you compare that to other uh, people groups, Hispanic men, um, same year, same time frame, 
make about 32,000, whereas a woman, Hispanic, 29,000. African-American men made or earned 38,000. African-American women, 34,000. Asian men out-earn white men at 60,000, whereas the white men came in at 55,000. And Asian women also out-earned white women by about 7,000 more, earning about 49,000. Native and Hawaiian, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander earned 38,000 men and 33,000 women. And American Indian and Alaskan Natives earned at about 31,000 female and 36,000 male. And so there you see the income gap, specifically larger between, uh, I want to say, yeah, the white male and and white female, but significantly less than every population group across the board with the exception of the Asian male and Asian female. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's a link you got. That's this link in the article, right? Yes. The race and gender Mm -hmm. wage gap. And it's titled Race Matters When It Comes to Pay Gap. And that's a 2015 article outlining the median annual earnings by race, ethnicity, and gender. Um. Uh, reported by the U.S. Census Bureau. Okay. So, three more three more areas we want to touch on. Um, this one is interesting and timely. Voting. Um, what's interesting, what I found interesting about this section is the similar to the war on drugs. Um, mm-hmm. they, they note that voter ID laws have been proven to be completely unnecessary and ineffective and they purport to Mm -hmm. prevent a kind of voter fraud that simply does not exist um and really liken it to a a, again a new jim crow and a way to keep um blacks and latinos from voting Um, i know this is a super controversial topic for a lot of people um when you think about the press around the current immigration situation and people voting who aren't here legally and all of that sort of thing. Um, but nevertheless, I thought this was, you know, some interesting information for us to consider. And again, this section in particular has, um, oh my gosh, at least 10, maybe nine different source documents that, um, that is Mm -hmm. citing here. So a few things, um, the there was a very influential um, conservative federal judge who previously upheld Indiana's voter ID law, and he has since reversed his position in light of a vast amount of data that now shows that no that voter ID laws are not necessary and do not prevent voter fraud, but they do legitimately and indisputably disenfranchise millions of voters. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a there's a database of U.S. voter fraud. Um, and in reviewing that, it uncovered virtually zero voter ID fraud out of an alleged over 2000 cases, only 10 legitimate cases of voter impersonation were discovered. That's one out of every 15 million. So when you think about it in those terms, that's hardly, you know, a number that's going to overturn an election. Um, 
in Texas in the last decade, there have been two confirmed accounts of legitimate voter fraud out of 20 million votes cast. Um, 11% of the American population doesn't have the kind of government ID required by the strictest voter ID laws in the states, including 18% of Americans over 65 and 25% of blacks. Um, there are, you know, specifically with regard to former felons voting, um, voter laws that prevent felons um, and former felons from voting disenfranchise almost 6 million Americans with felony charges in their past. And because of racial disparities in incarceration, these laws disproportionately disenfranchise people of color. And as a result, felony disenfranch disenfranchisement policies currently deny more than 10% of the black, black population the right to vote. And, and really, there's a lot of um, discussion and recent activity on the, you know, around the area of um, giving felons back the right to vote um, after they've served their sentences. And, you know, it's, it's hard to think about that especially as a Christian, when you think about the fact, you know, that they've served their time, presumably, right? And as Christians, we're taught that, you know, it was through grace that we've been saved, right? But we're so willing to, un to unwilling rather to extend grace and mercy to others. And so what is the purpose of disenfranchising those who have served their time, you know, have paid for their crimes, yeah. And that, that's a really good question. I, I really I have strong thoughts about those uh, on, about that particular topic. But really, when you think about it, you know, like Nikki said, they've served their time um, as equally as much as maybe there was a push for them to be punished for the crime that they've committed. So now that they've been punished for that infraction and now that they've served their time, uh, to the state, to the country, and now that <clears throat> it's time for them to be released back into society, what is the reason for withholding the right to vote? So it kind of goes back, as I'm having this thought, it actually goes back to the mass incarceration of the, you know, largest population in prison, the African-American community. So now that you're, when you're, when I, as I'm thinking of the largest population possibly experiencing releases, that would be African-Americans. So why would it be, if you were to put the, those thoughts together, a, a hindrance or a, a discouragement to allow them to regain their vote since they've you know, already served their time? So that really is a question to answer. If we are of uh, you know the thought that, yeah, you know, extend grace because it's by grace that we've been uh, forgiven, mm -hmm then they've served their time. And really, this is just one you of know, a few things. a lot things. of times, you know, the different... Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, I just think about the fact that, you know, we you, you force people to note on a job application if they've been convicted of a felony mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. an, an, an apartment rental application. I mean, and look, I mean, I get it. I, I understand that... You know, there's certain jobs that you, you know, might 
I, I don't even know. I mean, like I can understand why people think that's information everybody needs to know, you know, like some sex offender registry or what have you. But yeah. at the same time, um, when you when I think about it from a Christian perspective, I do really struggle and I, I haven't really thought through this in a great amount of detail. So I'm just being transparent and kind of like putting whatever's coming into my head out there for a minute. And that is that in all these cases, all these things that we require of people who come out of prison, are we really setting them free? Are we continually punishing them for the rest of their lives for something that presumably they've paid their crime, you know, they've paid for? Um, and, And how that all just continues to snowball to perpetuate this punishment forever where they're going to be limited in what they can do for income they're going to be limited in where they can work they have zero voice in society in terms of affecting change um, as a citizen you know they are not they are again relegated as was referred to earlier to this subclass of society so Yeah, it's a hard one. And there's a lot to unpack there. And I haven't admittedly done it myself. But just something in me says there's got to be there's got to be a better way. So um, yeah, yeah. Obviously, this is a little bit of a longer episode, but that's okay. I think this is information that's worth discussing. Um, And we've just got two more topics. Um, I'll just touch on media quickly where um, this is really focused on um, the amount of coverage that the media gives to, um, for example, white women who go missing versus non-white women, um, African-American children versus um, non, you know, versus white children. Um, It comes to mind when you think about indigenous women and that's a whole other segment of society that gets, you know, who are hugely impacted. And, um, you know, the statistics in that area alone, which I don't have in front of me, but are worth looking into. And maybe we can um, post something for folks to look at where the silence when indigenous, you know, Native American women go missing, um, or are murdered is huge. I know I've seen some, you know, news about that and some documentaries on that, that just really shock you. Um, so the last area that they go into in in more detail is housing. And again, this is one that you really need to understand sort of how some of our current, um, and recent housing, practices developed and um and where those all came from a really good book we talked about in our resource episode is the color of law and it talks about how um you know districting and mortgage lending practices um really evolved especially after world war ii i'm remembering as now you've got this whole um population of black soldiers returning from war and now they've got a skill right so they've got access to jobs that they didn't have access to before Um, now they're competing you know with their white neighbors for the same jobs now they're making an income 
they can afford a house and and how that just sort of slowly gets eroded to um, being pushed further and further away from those jobs, literally physically away to the point where, you know, they're they're taking buses or trains or, or carpooling literally hours each way just to get a job because they're only allowed to live in this this certain part um, of the area that is designed to keep them not only out of the jobs but out of the um, the neighborhoods where now whites are building their homes. Um, it's a really interesting book and it, it's again it just kind of goes through the establishment of more and more regulations and laws that support that type of discrimination. So, um, you know, a few few statistics here, and these are more recent, um, that have to do also with um, the housing crash from, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, um, and the subprime loans and how those were, um, you know, more minorities were pushed into those subprime loans, even when they qualified for prime loans, um, than whites were. And those types of loans can add, you know, they say up to $100,000 in interest payments over the life of a loan. Um, subprime loans were given to 41.5% of blacks and 30.9% of Latinos, but only 17.8% of whites. Um, and, you know, that reminds me of early mortgage guidelines and how, you know, mm-hmm. lenders were prohibited from mm-hmm. giving loans to people of color, particularly blacks, um, for the sole purpose of discriminating against them and keeping them out of what were deemed white, better neighborhoods. Um Let's see, they talk about um, a few other things here with some particular banks. Um, And first, among high-income borrowers in 2006, African Americans were three times as likely as whites to pay higher prices for mortgages, 32.1% compared to 10.5%. Latinos were nearly as likely as African Americans to pay higher prices for their mortgages at 29.1%. and then they cite, you know, a few specific banks and one that some of the statistics were um, around their lending practices. Um, and, you know, this, when you make housing more expensive for minorities, it gets back to that wealth discussion that we have and how it's harder for them to establish and accumulate wealth because we've now put the primary mechanism for doing so, which is home ownership, out of reach for them. Um, And that has, you know, contributed greatly to that growing wealth gap between um, blacks and whites. And they even say that over the last 25 years, the wealth gap has tripled between blacks and whites. Um... There's a lot of information here in this section um, and probably, you know, really need to start bringing this back into a summary. Um, But, you know, this this 
housing discrimination is so intertwined with so many other of the other areas that we've talked about, um, not only wealth, but education. When you think about how, you know, property taxes um, fund our schools and and how we've divided up our school districts and, and all of that and what that looks like. And you can start to see how it really is a system. It's a system of systems, right, that um, are inextricably intertwined to, to really perpetuate this, this white privilege and this oppression. Remember, the opposite of privilege is oppression of so many others, um, and how all of that leads to, you know, higher crime, worse jobs, you know, less opportunity, more people coming out of prison who are black than white, um, you know, related to their percentage of society and how many that um, disenfranchise. I mean, it's it's all tied together. You can't single any one of these areas out and not realize um, or rent and have it stand on its own. It's just, it's just not realistic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and even, you know, um, as I'm thinking about this, uh, even though it's not a part of what we thought, you know, um, discussed and talking about, but I'm thinking about the work that I'm doing a lot of, um, uh, times as, as we're looking through the needs and the urgent needs of women who are, in need of um, so uh, means to get access to jobs and you know attain some level of wealth, which is really day to day work and paycheck to paycheck living. Some of the biggest challenges we come up against uh, for the residents that we take care of is transportation. So when you look at as we're talking about housing and wealth, why isn't there public transportation in these communities? Why don't we have it? And then um, I, you know, I, I I read up on some of the arguments that are being made for why not to, why it's um, disadvantageous to build townhouses in and around the community. And um, a lot of times the argument that's being made for it is overcrowding. But sometimes I find myself reading through the lines that really the argument isn't overcrowding, but really what are we? Our, our comfort is being inhibited or the comforts um, through the lens by which, you know, some of this uh, conversation that is happening about reduction in population, overcrowded schools, mm-hmm. um, you know, those are some of the arguments that are being made. And I just feel like some of those explanations are just repackaged yeah, explanations for things that have been here for a long time, you know, allowing... One, no, the, the number of blacks that were allowed to move into a, a suburb after they came back from the war, you know, or at all was controlled by the institutions, you know, the, the mortgage industries or the banks. And they literally had rules. You know, you could read up on redlining. They had rules for how loans were given out to um, people of color, black soldiers coming back from the war, thinking, you know, like as, as mm-hmm. you said, Nikki, you know, they served the country. Now they're coming back to reap the benefits of making the sacrifice uh, for their country. And it's now not available at all. So even the opportunity to build wealth after you've made the decision to serve your country doesn't even exist. And so think about the conversations that you participate in where you hear arguments that are making being made against reasons for bringing a townhome community into your subdivision 
or reasons why you don't want bus public transportation to connect one community to the next or mid-level county to western or eastern county and you know think about those reasonings and think about the explanations that you gave and the explanations that have been given to you do they really when you put it in the big you know frame of understanding what was really being discussed and what really what the what what the threats are that are being felt to the comfort, the margin within which we live and just kind of filter it through those lens and just see what you come up with, especially now that you have the backdrop of this podcast with the amount of information that we've given you, like Nikki said in the opening numbers, facts, data, statistics, you can argue all day, but the data is here. And a lot of them are, uh, well, particularly in the one where we talked about the police, those were given voluntarily. Mm-hmm. And so use those. It's not like they were mandated, you know, or felt like they had to skew the numbers. They gave those and those are still working to support the fact that, you know, um, arrest and profiling of African-American or people of color is significantly higher. So just try to filter it through those lens and let's see what we could come up with in terms of trying to have an honest and transparent conversation where the goal is not to make you or the goal is not for individuals that are participating in the conversation to have to be defensive, but just to arrive at and using truth to arrive at a place where we can move forward. Yeah. And I, you know, you just said exactly um, what the author does here in terms of kind of throwing out this challenge. And I just I think it's a good way to sort of end um, our discussion here um, because I couldn't say it better than this. Um, although you you kind of just did. <laughs> so but, um, you know, it's in fact, I won't because you just said it, um, you know, but he ends this article Um, really with the same sort of challenge, which is that we've got a responsibility to educate ourselves, to be informed, uh, to to allow our opinions to be informed. And if we're going to have an opinion, then it needs to be an informed one, that we should be educating ourselves. And, you know, it doesn't take a lot of effort these days. We are not talking about, you know, the Dewey Decimal System, and going and looking up library books. I mean, all the information in the world just about is at our fingertips on the internet. And it's so easy to go find information and educate yourself. And if you're going to have an opinion, you have an obligation to do that. And if you aren't going to bother doing that, then maybe you should be careful about, you know, expressing an opinion that you're not sure is factually accurate. Um, I mean, every person is going to have to make their own decision and they're responsible for their own, you know, the words that come out of their mouth. And um, all we're saying is, you know, what you just said, Franny, educate yourself. The information is there. And hopefully some of the information that we've shared with you guys today has helped, you know, pique your interest. Again, that's what we're here to do. We're here to sort Mm of... um, Maybe not scratch the itch, maybe to cause an itch that you're then going to go scratch for yourself by doing some digging, read some books, watch a documentary. There's more out there than you could ever possibly consume. And, you know, don't just listen to our podcast. I mean, we were inspired by so many others who are out there already doing this work. And what we came to realize, as we've said before, is the more people that are talking about this, the better. 
And it's okay that if you go read something that conflicts with something we said here today, throw it out there. We are here to learn along with you. That's Mm -hmm. what this is about. So uh, with that, you will find the link to this document um, on all our forms of social media. So do us a favor, go look there, comment, engage in the discussion, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks, Franny. Take care. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to A Different Truth. In this episode, we walked through a lot of supporting data. This is tough information to take in if you've never considered it before. In our next episode, we'll explore white fragility, a concept that may help explain some of what you could have been feeling while listening to these episodes. If so, you're in good company, so don't be too anxious. Together, we'll continue the journey. Talk to you soon. This podcast was recorded at Double Door Studios in Gainesville, Virginia, hosted by Franny Robin and Nikki Bland. Produced and engineered by Kenny Bland. Original music by Ryan Robin. Original artwork by Ellie Bland.